0: G'day, you're listening to Shaw Walker on Reports, a podcast about creating better public reports. We talk with experts about how to create these documents that explain complex issues to a wide audience. You may be in government, in a non-government organisation or in a business, but if you create public reports, this podcast may be for you. The podcast comes from Australian editorial consulting firm Shaw DMS, which helps organisations to make reports better. In this episode of Shaw Walker on Reports, we're going to hear again from someone who's had a real influence on Australian government policy, former Productivity Commission Chair Gary Banks. Gary joined the Productivity Commission's predecessor, the Industry Commission, in 1990, and in 1998 he became its founding chair. The Commission is an independent body charged with finding out how Australia can have a more productive and efficient economy, and that in turn is a key to higher living standards. Gary Banks ran the Commission until 2012, and he established a reputation for being willing to push governments hard. In a previous episode of Shaw Walker on Reports, we heard from Gary about the role that reports play in government. In this episode, we look more closely with him at how reports get put together, and at the challenges that people have to confront during that process.
1: A chap called Daryl Huff wrote a book years ago called How to Lie with Statistics. <laughs> I was in first year at at Monash University and I thought this was outrageous, you know. But he was making a point, and that is, you know, you can manipulate statistics, uh, and you've heard the concept of policy-based evidence, you know. So the whole process of research and evidence can be debauched, you know, if it's used in the wrong way. So, and it does does happen, um, and it's a natural tendency, and it's a natural political tendency, I think, You know to do that and another reason for having studies that are public is that a study if it's done well will show the bigger picture based on the broader data so that if if, uh, for example a minister or um, a senior executive in a company or whatever chooses to cherry pick and manipulate the data the evidence is there and journalists and others can go to that uh, or, or others who have a different view can go to that and use it. So, you know, one of the functions of a, of a study, if it has shelf life, is it can remain there in a sense uh, to prevent data being misused or uh, just... Manipulated in ways that, that would be, you know, would be wrong from a policy point of view, even though politically, you know, it may have attractions.
0: When the Productivity Commission wrote a report, a crucial issue was often this. How much licence did the Commission have to get a good outcome? The Productivity Commission's reports to government are limited by their terms of reference, essentially restrictions on what they can examine and so many contentious inquiries have had to provide their advice rather diplomatically working within those terms of reference
1: the way in which that the organisation is being asked to provide that advice can make a big difference to how well you can do it and um so the The way in which a a study is set up and framed, and it may be by the the person who commissioned it or it could be by the people who are involved in the study, is really crucial to make sure that it's understood how it will be, how well it will be done. I mean, there's that famous American baseball player called Yogi Berra who, who has wonderful sort of mangled sayings which always somehow make sense. And he says, if you don't know where you're going... There's a risk that you won't get there, uh, or something like that. You know, so I think, you know, clarifying, you know, where you're going and why why the study is needed is very, very important at the start, and it's particularly important if you've got a big team working on something that everybody has a common sense of, of where they fit into the bigger picture. So, so that is very important, and um, there have been occasions I think. Uh, in the life of the Productivity Commission and its predecessors, where a bit of a tussle has taken place with the Treasurer of the day as to how to frame an inquiry to ensure that the Commission had sufficient scope to, to address the thing properly, in other words, that it wasn't being ruled, certain things weren't being ruled out that may well have been crucial, you know, to getting a good a good outcome. In
0: 1996, Australia's new conservative government under John Howard asked the Productivity Commission under Gary Banks to look at Australia's private health insurance system. The terms of reference specifically asked the Commission not to look at other parts of the health system, which presented an interesting problem.
1: So the government had at that time had a problem with private health insurance, the same problem it's got right now, and that is that premiums were going up too fast. Um, It's very much a cost-driven system. So costs were going up, premium that was flowing through into premiums. Um, So the Commission was asked to do an inquiry into private health insurance, and this was in about 1997. Um, But the government didn't want the Commission, you know, um, wandering all over the health system and making recommendations about things that, you know, it, it wasn't, the government didn't want looked at. So it was explicitly ruled out. On the other hand... Um, it's very hard to do a study of a significant part of the health system like the private health insurance system without thinking about the context in which it's operating. So uh, I headed that inquiry and my approach to that was to meet the spirit of what the government wanted but, but not the letter in the sense that we looked at different scenarios in which the private health insurance system would operate in the future. So we weren't saying which scenario we thought was the best one but we said it was better to have a private health insurance system that was robust enough that it could operate in, in under different systems, and we, we did it that way. And we got away with it. You know, I think everybody understood that how, how well a, a particular cog in a machine functions depends on how the machine more generally is operating, um, and people accepted that, including the
0: government. Some years later, Banks headed the Howard Government's Regulation Task Force, on this occasion, he knew that the government wanted a fairly small, limited report with maybe a dozen recommendations. Banks and his task force came up with quite a few more than that. A lot more. So that was the
1: case where I was I headed a, an inquiry and report, but not in my role as chairman of the Productivity Commission. So a task force was created with a number of uh, people to head it up, and I was chairing it. Um... And it was clear that, again, the government was on the back foot. Uh, uh, Small business always complains about red tape, but suddenly the big end of town was complaining about it. The BCA was complaining about it. You may well remember those days. And the BCA was putting a lot of effort into showing what the costs of regulation were. So the government decided uh, that it needed a report to be seen to be responding, but also substantively to respond And uh, and at the time, I think the idea was we'll get banks and uh, other members of the task force to do this report. Um, We'll give them three months uh, to do a short, sharp report. And and we could imagine them coming out with a handful of uh, recommendations that will be manageable. As it turned out, we were so successful in getting business engaged in this process because business is often quite cynical about these inquiries. But on this one, for whatever reason, Uh, they were actively involved and and provided all sorts of recommendations and and reasons why certain regulations needed to be operated. So we ended up with 126 or so recommendations, not six, which I think the government originally uh, had had expected. And, And, in fact, in the end, the government responded to a lot of those recommendations, far more than a half dozen. So in the end, I think the government itself felt that it had been very worthwhile, even though its expectations at the beginning, you know, were for a more contained uh, report. And And the other aspect of that was I think the politics of the regulatory issues got a lot better because I think business felt
0: that it had been listened to, which is quite important. Now, before we go on, a word about why this podcast exists. I'm David Walker, and I run Australian editorial consulting firm Shaw Walker DMS. Shaw Walker DMS produced this podcast, and since you've found Shaw Walker on Reports, an interesting enough podcast to listen this far, please consider subscribing, and give us a rating in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast software. And if you face issues and difficulties around reports and other content in your work, please consider hiring my firm to help you deal with them. Shorewalker DMS has worked with clients in fields from accounting to biotechnology to macroeconomics. We help organizations to make reports better. You can find more ideas like these at our website, shorewalker.net, And you can click on the contact link there to start talking with us about solving your challenges. It's worth taking a look at why reports sometimes do not succeed. Banks, like many others, points to 2010's report of the Australian Taxation Review, headed by former Treasury Secretary Ken Henry, as a report that never got the traction it needed, either with policymakers or with the public. Banks has written that the Henry Review is hamstrung by politically motivated instruction not to look at the level of Australia's Goods and Services Tax, or GST, which was a, an important component of the tax system. If you're not allowed to look at important parts of the overall problem, he reckons, you reduce your chances of success.
1: Yeah, so this, this comes down to that earlier uh, point about um, the importance of, of a study having a sufficient remit to be able to look at all the things that are important to the objective of the study. And I felt quite strongly, and I wasn't the only one, that it was unfortunate that if we're having a, a major review of the tax system, that a key component of the tax system was ruled out. Um And even though the Henry Review found a kind of backdoor way of addressing some of that, uh, it wasn't the same, and an opportunity was was lost. and I think I think at the time the government of the day thought that you know, looking at the GST would just be politically too ugly. Um, in fact, I think you know it might have been part of a process that could have led to uh, reforms being accepted, you know, down the track, if they were part of a balanced uh, package of things, so, so that is a case I think where, you know, if a study or an inquiry or a report is hamstrung by things being ruled out, it limits what it can do, and of course, in that case, things were made even worse by the fact that the government of the day cherry-picked the report. And so what was a balanced package of recommendations ended up being an unbalanced uh, uh, sort of uh, policy going forward, which focused just on the mining tax, you know, rather than seeing that as part of a, you know, an integrated package of of reforms. Um, It also, I think it illustrates the point, David, that um, in some areas, tax is one, industrial relations is another. The politics can be so severe that it can be very hard to get the kind of remit that you need to do the sort of report that, that an economist would say is, you know, it ticks all the boxes. So, um, but that then comes down to, well, why do a report if it, if it can't address things in a comprehensive way? Um, so I'd, I'd always be pushing to allow the Commission, for example, when I was there, uh, to have a free reign. Uh, and reassure the ministers that you know that wasn't going to turn out badly for them because at the end of the day they make the decisions
0: ken henry's 2010 tax reform report is not the only report to have fallen short of achieving immediate and lasting results but some reports fail to achieve their immediate aims and yet they nevertheless have a long-term influence one report often mentioned here is Professor Ross Garneau's 2008 Climate Change Review. That was commissioned by Australia's main left-wing political party, the ALP, in 2007 and delivered after the ALP1 government at the end of that year. The Garneau review did not immediately achieve a lasting carbon pricing scheme but it won widespread support from policy thinkers of many different I thought that was an
1: excellent report by Ross Garnot, that early one. In some ways, that report uh, was better than the more recent work that's been done because he had a relatively free reign and you could go back to it. But it, it does come down to the point that he, he did that report for Labor in opposition. When Labor got into government it started to see things rather differently, different pressures came to bear and so on. But the report was still there and I, I think is, is, you know, has been a valuable contribution uh, uh, that was made at the time. I mean, the very first report ever done, worldwide probably, independent report on, on what was called greenhouse, was done by the Industry Commission. Um, and I led it um, back in 1991. Uh, that report was done and it was done commissioned by Paul Keating who was treasurer at the time ahead of the uh, Rio summit which was the first international summit on climate change uh, to be and and the government of the day wanted to have some information to to, to inform its negotiating position at that summit so it was a case of you know a study informing a a government approach to a really important issue but So we started off really well, but I think we lost our way a little bit subsequently.
0: Some regular reports can, over time, simply lose some of their reason for existing. Such was the case with Australia's series of intergenerational reports. These were originally thought up in the 1990s, and their stated aim at the time was to tell Australia's citizens about the long-term pressures facing the national government's budget. I think the first intergenerational report uh, was excellent and
1: partly because the politics uh, perhaps were a bit less constraining at that time and I think thereafter either the politics were more constraining or the politicians involved wanted to use it as a vehicle in a more polit- overtly political way, I think it became has become less useful. I mean it's still it's still good to have that information out there but Uh, for example the most recent intergenerational report has assumptions about productivity growth that just don't really stack up and you can see why they're in there, you know, it 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 makes things look a little bit more optimistic than perhaps a more realistic assumption would,
0: would do. Still other reports suffer a different problem. Their authors fail to hear the public's various views on the issues involved. There are public
1: reports and public reports and Those that are made public, but don't have a strong public input along the way, in other words, don't have a process that engages the public, are quite different and, in my view, much less effective
0: than than the other sort. Now that we've looked at the failures, let's look at the successes. For Gary Banks, one standout is the 1993 Hilmer Competition Review, chaired by former Australian McKinsey and Company chief, Professor Fred Hilmer. Banks sees that Hilmer report as one of Australia's most productive public reports of recent decades, and that's in part because it made competition an easier idea to sell to both Parliament and to the public.
1: Yes, I think it is a standout, and... And the, commission, the Productivity Commission did a review of national competition policy when it looked at some of the reasons for that. And it sort of ticked all the boxes in terms of what you would think of as an ideal process. It, it had clear terms of reference about looking at impediments to competition, and there were lots of them in the Australian economy. It didn't rule anything out. It engaged the states as well as the Commonwealth, because many of those issues with infrastructure, et cetera, were state-based. Um, it had a, uh, a, a task force that was um, very suited to the task, um, and a good team of people writing and doing the research. And then they followed a process that was very engaging with the public in terms of, you know, issues papers and discussion papers and a draft report. and um, and, and Hilmer himself uh, is quite an engaging fellow and he he performed quite well on television in in terms of explaining why all of this needed to be done and then of course when you look at the outcome from that because it was such a successful process and it built a lot of credibility the government was able to implement a lot of its recommendations and it's had quite a significant effect on on uh on on GDP and on just material prosperity in Australia, I think. In areas where we can't go back, you know, there have been ongoing definitive changes in the way things are done in Australia. I think the notion that uh, government services should also be in a competitive context as well as other things I think was quite important and infrastructure services in particular. So while there are complaints about different forms of infrastructure, I think you know the the old approach, in just about any area you can think of, of government almost a government monopoly, you know was very high cost, very unresponsive to consumer demand, and so on. So you know I think that was that was an important uh, important step, but just the notion that um, that competition was important, and that regulations needed to in a sense pass a competition test uh, rather than just be you know promulgated on the basis of of the presumed benefits so looking at both the costs and the benefits i think was a a way of thinking that was broadly accepted as a result of that inquiry not so not to say that governments have always followed it but that was quite important i think
0: now before we end this podcast. We need to focus on an idea that is a constant presence in Gary Banks' writing in this area. It's the concept of public engagement, which he sees as critical to the success of public reports. He's argued for processes that have public input right the way through, including feedback on a discussion paper and then a draft report. And he's also argued that face-to-face meetings will elicit information from the public that you can't get in any other way I think for the kind of uh,
1: policy issue or problem where public engagement uh, is is important it's not enough to to simply uh, ask people for their views and have them on the website or something like that it's important to be able to discuss uh, discuss the issues with with the public or the interested public right. So that's why I say that you know face-to-face interaction, going to businesses, going to different regions, etc., talking to different uh, members of society in in a in a two-way interactive sort of way is is a really important part of it. And the point that you've raised uh, came up again and again. We we would uh, in various inquiries and reports that I was involved in, we talked to people sort of off the record initially to get a sense of what they thought was important, and we get wonderful insights which often were not reflected uh, um, as well in the formal submission that was a public document that came out. Often because, for reasons you can imagine, you know, a business didn't want to stick its head up too high and be controversial and so on. And, but So I always felt we got the best of both worlds. We got, the, we got the insights, which was important in terms of how we directed our research, and we got the formal submission, um, which, which sort of clarified some of the broader issues that were important, but we were able to get both. If we just, for example, said, this is a public inquiry or a public report, anyone who's got a, any views, you know, send us an email or whatever, we'd never get that richness coming through. Um, and it's quite, that richness is important when you have have to make a judgment um, about which way to go in terms of recommendations, because it always does come down to judgment. It's never black and white. And so the judgment typically is better if it's been informed by a wide range of meetings and discussions that you've had with a range of, of people. Um the inquiry that comes to mind that was most important in that respect was the one we did on um, on the gambling industries so the first one which was in about 1999 and you might recall at that time there was a there was a war between um, the social welfare community and the gambling industries and uh, they're at loggerheads and we had that inquiry and we we're able to bring both sides literally around the table and have discussions and they were quite well behaved and uh, uh, we got them to agree at least about some of the issues and the problems uh, which I don't think would ever have happened if it had been a different kind of less public, less interactive inquiry.
0: Banks led several reviews in this way. One was an inquiry into gambling in Australia.
1: If we're Talking about the gambling inquiry... So here's an interesting thing. Uh, I headed that inquiry uh, with a chap called Robert Fitzgerald, who was the president of ACOS. He'd been the president of ACOS. I don't think he was at that time. He approached the issue as gambling was, um, was a bad thing. I approached it more as, well, gambling is something people like to do, so let them do it. So we were kind of at opposite ends, right? And we ended up in the middle where we came to the view that um, gambling was the sort of area which involved both social costs but also social benefits. And the the trick in regulation was to reduce the social costs without unduly reducing the benefits to people who aren't harmed by it. And we both agreed on that. And then it was a matter of, well, what are the particular regulations? How would you frame them? And so on. I think that meeting of minds, in my case anyway, um, came about through people attending public hearings and just telling me their story, you know. Now, you can't generalise on the basis of individual stories, but it can help you understand the the bigger picture, I think. And so the Commission has the benefit of a research team that can actually pick up an insight that you might have got from an individual. Uh, related to his addiction to gambling and think about the wider implications of that and how you could you could generalise a, a policy response that would help him but would also help uh, a, a wider range of people. Now, that's rather different to... Sometimes politicians will speak to somebody in their electorate who will give them an idea and they'll run with it, you know, whereas the Commission would test that idea through a public uh, draft report And if it got enough support and there was no big uh, issues raised against it, it may well find its way into the final report and so on. But it will have been stress-tested, which which was quite important.
0: Banks argues that reviews often gain from listening to individual members of the public. I've still got in my mind a public hearing in
1: Adelaide and a fellow turned up at the hearings. And it uh, it was a public hearing... And he was quite brave to do it because he told us his story, you know, and how he'd become addicted to the gambling. And he said his low point was hocking his children's Christmas presents to get money so he could go and play the pokies. And he was so ashamed of it, you know. And he said if, there was only, if there'd only been somebody who could have you know he could have gone to and talked to about his problems and so on and he so he said the sort of things that would have helped him both in terms of counseling but also in terms of his ability to keep using the atm when he was you know when he was in a gambling fever and things like that he mentioned a number of things that would have helped him which when we sort of did the research and thought about them a lot more we felt you know would fly more generally so I do remember that fellow. I wouldn't recognise him if I saw him now, but I, his words
0: are still in my head. You know. We plan to bring you more of Gary Banks' thoughts in future episodes of this podcast. In the meantime, remember, if you found this podcast useful, you may want like to look up more of our report content at shorewalker.net, or even consider hiring us to help you make your reports better.